Hello, welcome to State of Sustainability, where we unpack sustainability issues. Today, we're joined by Henry Dimbleby, co-founder of Leon and author of National Food Strategy, and Seth, obviously, who we all know, CEO of Altruistic. And we are here at COP, which is exciting, but actually... Quite weird. Quite weird. weird. Yeah. And actually, the music has just started. So if you hear a deep bass in the background, it is, it is literally that they've opened up into concert mode. Although it's very nice not being quite so hot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, like, Henry, what are, your, what are your thoughts and cops so far? Well, I don't know. This is my first day, so I haven't been into the blue zone yet. I, uh, this is my first day in the green zone. I've been outside of COP. And I don't really know what's making it. It's a lot of people saying a lot of the same things. And obviously, there, there's the kind of, you know, the the UAE's contribution, and then there's the formal negotiation, which is just getting serious, and we don't know what's going to happen. And then there's this whole jamboree around it. And I don't know, I spoke to some people who, you know, I spoke to people who make renewable cement, who've done some business and this kind of thing. But I have you know, I guess if you didn't have it at all, that problematic, but the form that's taken is quite weird. I mean, theoretically, it could just be a group of people negotiating yeah. in a room. Yeah. It has become this kind of... Uh... Yeah, and actually, I think you you still have a lot of rooms. I think there are like a hundred rooms in the city where business is being done and deals are being negotiated. And then there's Disneyland, where we are right now, full of fantasy and fun. I, mean, I was wondering if, like, in Paris 1919, <laughs> uh, around those negotiations, yes. did, I, I, I would be surprised if they didn't kind of build up. With kombucha and iced tea yeah. and, uh, and, yeah. and, and, and camel ice cream. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and also the glitzy hotels at every other corporate event is host to that as well. It yes. seems just to be excess beyond excess. Exactly. I mean, uh, Henry, you were telling me that one of the banks that you were speaking with was, was just saying they've already done several deals over the last few yeah. days. Yeah, they've done the sort of companies that they've invested in. They've, they've done four deals, I think, over the last few days. They said the first cop that's that's happened. That. Oh my god! Um, and then, interestingly, I, I posted about speaking to them, and then I got all of the. I, I hadn't realised that this bank apparently, has, according to the people on social media, has a very bad climate record. Yes, so, yes. So that kind of that kind of goes on. But uh, and the, the, the this place is so extraordinary. You know, this I went to Dubai people who haven't been here is like kind of metropolis um you know the film metropolis it's kind of there is literally i mean here the the, the greenery that you can see behind us is probably about 90 percent of the greenery in dubai most of it is just concrete and buildings we saw uh, a, a bird yesterday like, look at the bird <laughs> so you're kind of talking about biodiversity yes in this like Nature, if you want to see nature, you Back don't, don't go to... <laughs> yeah. And of course, that are. bird was mechanical, powered by oh, hydro oh, hydrogen. Oh, we actually didn't see it, we only heard it. <laughs> right, so it might, it might just have been a speaker. <laughs> oh, so would you go as far to say this is like the corporate cop? I, I don't know, I, I've, only, I've only been to Glasgow on the side, so I am not the person, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like someone who doesn't understand asking someone who doesn't understand Formula One and has been to one race. Brave New World, basically. It's <laughs> I feel like I feel like that as well. I think everybody secretly just feels completely overwhelmed by the whole scenario. Um, but Seth, what do you think about it? And what do you think about like the corporate role? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I was kind of saying this a bit earlier, like I think you could spend almost any amount of money here 
if you were a business. Like you could come here and you could do a $10,000 booth somewhere. And actually Izzy was wandering through the, the desert land of startup exhibit or whatever, startup pavilion. And she saw just hundreds of startups that had probably all paid $10,000 to be there. And no one was there. It was just totally deserted. And so there are these kind of desert pavilions where people have put up shop but no one shows up. And then at the same time, there are maybe 50 hotels here where all the sort of big corporations are, 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 are doing business. And, you know, there's something a bit weird about that for me. Like COP used to be kind of government delegates and multilaterals and NGOs and a few corporates that were early movers. And it does seem to be a big corporate junket now. Mm. Yeah. But, but, you know, some of that is good, right? So the, one of the businesses that I was speaking to who had done a lot of business was uh, someone who makes hydrogen generators, so electricity generators out of hydrogen. And uh, he came to someone who was doing a development in the UAE, uh, and they ordered like 150 of these things, and they'd sold in their whole history of the company, they'd sold five. So, you know, so yeah. that kind of thing is, is, you know, you can't, if you care about climate we know that a lot of it is going to be what it is it's, it's, it's driven by the economy and therefore most yeah. of the solutions are going to come from businesses doing things differently so yeah you kind of don't want to be too cynical but at the same time it's hard it doesn't feel like a utopia it feels more dystopic than utopic i would say yeah i, I and I, I you know like i i kind of wonder how much we're actually talking about the global south, where a lot of the, the, the large scale devastation that we're going to see from climate change is going to occur. And, you know, I, I kind of have two hats, like I started altruistic, but then I also started an organization called the Pakistan Environment Trust, which works with the textile industry and many other companies in Pakistan. And I don't hear much talk about adaptation and resilience and how do we build new homes for those who are going to be displaced. Uh, and how do we ensure that food is affordable for countries where, which are actually going to see their agricultural production halve because of heat waves? I feel like there's a lot of talk on renewable energy and cool new technologies that will have most of their application in developed markets. I just don't hear a lot about the other, the other half, almost. Interesting. I mean, and, and, and theoretically, I mean, I was standing here at midday today, wondering like if I just stood there, how how many minutes I would do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Measuring hours, not not days. And so you know, it clearly has for this area very real issues. I guess they don't really have agriculture here, and you know, as I was saying to you earlier, it feels like the money is just kind of pumping up out the ground, mm. and that obviously helps you. If you have, if you happen to be in a country that has money, you can obviously adapt. Yes. Much more easily than if you're in sub-Saharan oh, Africa for sure. or India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or one of those countries. Maybe if we actually would just talk a bit about the agriculture side of things, right? And Regen Ag, we're we're seeing a lot of commitments coming out. Well, I think that's one of the biggest themes that have come out out of the conversation so far. But like. What is regenerative agriculture? Everyone's talking about it, but what does that actually mean? So interesting, I think it's from the food perspective, being here is quite interesting because we have, in the UK, we have a very myopic view of uh, what food sustainability and security looks like. We happen to live on an island that still, uh, and DEFRA did this Department of Plant Food and World Affairs did this work a few years ago. We could still feed ourselves from our own resources if the U-boats came back. And 
coming somewhere where, which clearly that is impossible, puts a different dent to it. So in a, in a kind of UK context, regenerative agriculture is a much debated term, but you know, the, the kind of leaders in the movement, people like Martin Lines, uh, who created the regenerative agriculture network, the nature-friendly farming network, they would say that there are, there are certain features of it that are common in our kind of climate. So they would be lower or no tilling, cover crops, often using a, uh, some kind of ruminant in a rotation, but not essentially. Uh, so, uh, but, but fundamentally, the, the name tells you what it is, which is we have lost 69% of our biodiversity since 1970. And regenerative agriculture is agriculture that, that is a net positive yeah. mm -hmm. for nature. And in the end, hopefully, a net negative for carbon oil. We haven't achieved that yet. Mm. And I think you kind of, it sits in a kind of continuum. So on one end, you have uh, agriculture that could be sustainable, but definitely isn't regenerative. So you can imagine uh, high yielding agriculture. Hello. Hello. <laughs> 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 Disneyland. <laughs> so you can imagine, I'm sure it will be the case, that science gets us to a place where we can have huge, uh, you know, 100 hectare American fields we do now growing corn, but that they grow that corn in a way that is, uh, that is carbon neutral and you don't have pollution inputs. But that would not be regenerative, it would still be effectively one species. Yeah. above the ground, dominating the environment. And that's a one end that will need that. And then at the other end, you have the kind of organic, really low. And in between, you're going to have a whole form of, and that kind of, on, in organic, you're saying, we want to have low yields because we want to have other species living on the farm. And then you'll have all sorts of things in the middle which adopt different ones, different pieces. And even actually the people who are going for that kind of scientific, like, more yield, less input. They're already using some of the techniques of regen ag, for example, yeah. cover cropping, salt and soil. So I think it's, it's more of a, I think it's a pretty futile debate. People get into it, but getting into debate about what it is yeah. is a bit futile. And then, so if you look at that in a, then to take the context here, you know, obviously, or in India, yeah. It's going to be a completely different yeah. set of techniques. Yeah. So yeah. you know, but you can imagine still in India, you can imagine or back the outcomes Canada, being the outcome would have to be for me, it has to be nature up, yeah, uh, carbon down. Yeah. You know, yeah, that is fundamental. What the outcomes need to be. And how does that translate into like a corporate sustainability agenda? So we've, uh, we've yeah, seen a lot of kind of I don't know regenerative alliances happening at COP. But like, how do they translate that into, I don't know, day-to-day -day practice or into their strategy? And scale, like when you look at scale. Nestle's announcements, for example, and you know, all the other large food businesses, do you think that we're looking at a real deep, lasting, large-scale transformation across the supply chain? Or do you think this is a bit of piloting and PR? So I think it has to be large-scale across the supply chain or we all lose, right? So we have to, and the only way that happens is to have land use frameworks by country. So each country has to look at how it uses its land and work out where, 
which areas are most suited to that very high yielding, mm -hmm. potentially not very nature regenerating, but carbon has to be carbon zero, sustainable yeah. intensification. Which areas actually we should probably take out of cultivation together yeah. because they're marginal added. Which areas we should say, well, here's an opportunity to have regenerative agriculture with nature and farming living alongside. And then, critically, they have to design their um, methods of regulating and um, paying subsidies or payments to farmers yeah. to, to incentivize the farmer on each. Because you're never going to have a Stalinist five, you know, approach where you get tell each farmer. So you have to build, luckily, farming is subsidized to, by every country in the world and therefore you can change the subsidies to incentivize the right things in the right places. Uh, that will then feed into what the big food companies uh, yeah. do. Now, the, the other reason I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic, funnily enough, on environment, the environmental elements of the food system being fixed, because I think there is actually, particularly as, you know, as we saw, the huge um, surge of interest in regenerative farming when with the Ukraine war and oil prices um, and fertilizer prices going up because suddenly the farmers were actually making yeah. more money yeah. because they weren't having to rely so much on pesticides and nitrogen and all of that. So I think there, there is actually, you know, the big companies such as the Nestle's and the, the, you know, the, the FMCG companies, some of these things, you could have really quite a big bang for your buck yeah. without it costing much money. Yeah. They're just a different way of thinking. So rather than on health, where I think we're a bit stuck, I actually think these companies could do quite a lot, even now, even regulation yeah. as it currently is, to begin the movement. Yeah. They will need, they will, you will need the changes of regulation to complete them. And Henry, one of the things that I actually often come across that's missing is a change in how supplier contracts work where actually these sort of the, the, the impetus is still pushed onto the farm. And while there might be a payback over the next 10 years, the farm has to make an investment upfront to yeah. make this work. Yeah. Uh, and we heard a great example a couple of days ago in, in coffee, for instance, where uh, for farms that have low yielding coffee plants, there's actually solutions to make them higher yielding again, and you kind of cut it off near the base. Yeah. Uh, and in three years time, the, it, it, it'll, it'll, it'll go back to high yields. But the investment upfront for the farm to be willing to take that hit of the next three years is something most farms are not willing to, to undertake. Yeah. Do you think that actually the large corporations are going to help with that, either in capital or? So you see it happening. You see it beginning to happen a little bit with capital, but actually in terms of uh, supply agreements. So uh, you're beginning to see people that are, if you farm in this way, I guarantee to pay you for that yeah. week, whatever it is. Yeah. And some of the cereals companies are doing that, some of the great companies are doing that. And I think that will, that'll be the thing. I'll say, okay, you're going to do the investment, but I need to take the risk away. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that is quite a neat way of doing it. Oh, for sure. So we've spoken about the corporate's role and what they're doing. But what about the farmers? I know that there's a lot of pressure on farmers to like supply data, but like what? What's that mean? Yeah, and also just, again, a, another bugbear, right? I feel like a lot of us in the global north are talking about universal primary data capture. What I mean by that is there's an expectation that every farm should be filling out some sort of a survey or providing some sort of data in. And right now, many farms that we know in the UK have the, the nephew or the cousin of the farmer just filling this out and putting out in virtually anything. And that's a problem in itself from an audit and assurance perspective. 
at the same time, when I think about what a, a dairy farmer in India looks like, it's a person who owns a cow. Yeah. It's not a farm in any, yeah. in any shape of the word. And so I kind of wonder whether this sort of primary data, you know, fetish almost has gone, gone too far and we need to reconcile to a world where we actually have better sampling yeah. and we can train models to generate secondary data. Uh, well, it depends what you want to do. So I'm not an expert on, on the global south. The work that I did was a UK food strategy and it dealt with, there are a lot of areas, a lot of bits of the north which have similar, where the answer is the same and they dealt a bit with the south in terms of trade. I'm not an expert. In the, in the areas where the work that I did, it depends what you're going to do with the data. So if you are going to pay for results, then it has to be farm by farm and it has to be good yeah. farm by farm yeah. data. So for example, there is no way that one or two technologies maybe that are becoming a, a physical agrocarbon, which actually just automatically takes loads of soil samples on a farm and measures the carbon that's yeah. very data intensive. Yeah. So we're miles away from being able to pay for carbon. If you did, you would have to have primary yeah. data. There are other things, if you're thinking about your land use framework yeah. and about what your land is like, where clearly you can do something. So I think yeah. it really depends on on what you want to do with it. Obviously, it should theoretically become easier and easier to collect. So to give you a really dumb example, but um, uh, I was at a, 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 a rewilding farm, a farmer who was trying to rewild, and he was trying to keep his deer population yeah. at, the, at, a, at a sustainable level. So he has to cull and he sells meat venison every year and he couldn't work out why. You, know, you have to count, basically, you have to, yes. out, you have to kill half of the deer every yes. year and he couldn't work out why they kept growing. <laughs> and then he borrowed uh, a drone with infrared uh, thing <laughs> and, the, uh, and AI counting all the deer in his forest and he had three times the number of deer that he thought he had. So those kind of automated <laughs> drones, AI, should make a lot of accounting and data easier. The, the, the difficult one, the really difficult one, on the ground, that's, yes. really, that's really tough. Yes, for sure. Love that example. And I guess, I, I think we've heard from brands as well that they are collecting a lot of data from these surveys and not actually knowing what to do with it. Yeah, but I, I do feel with the huge advances in AI now that uh, working out if data is clean or if it isn't clean in an automated way, you know more about this than me, will become possible. So it'll be possible to go back in time, data you collected, get, make an assessment of actually was it good data or yeah. not, or is it something funny about it, and then use it. So I'm not, I'm worried about, I'm worried about it if we are making people like form filling in itself yeah. for no purpose and a bad thing. Yeah. But I think having data that is currently not used is not because we will almost certainly find a way to use it. I think you're right. I mean, what we're finding in our business, for instance, is that the bulk of the effort for us has been building technology to take in data and classify it. Yeah. And actually, if you think about our largest customers that we work with, we're ingesting maybe 100 million lines of data and actually tagging all of those in different ways. And that means that you're preserving it for use in many different use cases in the future. You can run actually analytics that you might not have conceived of today later because you've cleaned the data and classified yeah. it. And I think you've both spoken about before being able to like 
use synergies with that data against biodiversity data, against like nutritional data with the carbon data. So I can see how that actually has co-benefits. In terms of whether people are actually going to use this data to change their product for the good, what are, what are both your takes on that? So I, I am, I think cynical is the wrong word. Mm -hmm. I am realistic. So businesses will only do things that make money. They will go out of business if they don't make money. And they will they they may do better things, marginally better things, if it costs if they make a bit less money. Mm -hmm. But if they make much less money, they won't do it. Yeah. And they'll be actually be outcompeted by someone who does things badly. So for me, there are only two ways in which uh, a, a business will use the data to do something better. Mm -hmm. One is if regulation pushes them in that direction. So you have the hand of government, the hand of the state. Or the other is if they see a route to creating something that is either cheaper mm -hmm. or that the customer will pay more money for. Yeah. And yeah. that they can get through to a place where it's more profitable doing that than the old way you know, actually, just before we kind of wind up and anyone listening can tell the background music is getting louder and louder as we, as we, uh, I think there's actually a car roaming around COP with a speaker on its bonnet, oh blasting out some inspirational, motivational music. So apologies. But, but yeah, don't, just before we kind of uh, tie up, I mean, I, I'd love to talk a bit about regulatory capture, Henry, while you've yes. mentioned that. Yes. And let me just define what I mean for any of our listeners, and then would, would be great to get your take on it, right? I see regulatory capture in sustainability as large corporations increasingly shaping not just the sustainability debate and norms, but also standards, frameworks, and rules and laws in their interest. And I, I see this happening in a few ways. One is kind of, let's say, uh, covertly, where they're part of industry coalitions and consortia, and they kind of, let's say, play a role as a technical advisor or otherwise, and they sort of subtly shift, shift the framework, shift the methodology, sometimes over years in a particular direction. And there are a number of areas where there's, there's high risk of this happening, uh, I think, right? Like methane is a good, good example. Um, the other is a little more overtly, where you see them often in the regulatory dialogue with the regulators, actually influencing how the regulator is thinking as part of a working group or otherwise, and kind of changing the narrative. Like you've been, you've been in the room in a lot of a lot of regulatory conversations. How, like, what, what are your what are your thoughts on this? So I sit very close up in a in a UK food context. I'd probably most comfortable talk about that. And I think you you effectively have a kind of gradation of intervention. So at the most extreme side, you have organisations like the IEA, the, not the Energy Agency, but the Institute for Economic Analysis, which is a right-wing think tank in the UK, who are paid by tobacco, by, you know, we don't know, they don't release, so we know, we know there was a leak. Smoke from mirrors, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they are paid to cast doubt, to, to cast doubt in politicians' minds. So they are willfully done yes. as their, their job. You then have... Uh, kind of one up from that, you have bodies such as the BRC, the British Retail yeah. Consortium, the FDF, the Food and Drink Federation. They are membership organizations and they will talk a good game on, yes, we need regulation, we need to improve it, but actually 
if you are running that organization, you cannot, uh, you know, you have, say, a confectionery a company who is paying your wages. You cannot say, we want to do something that will reduce the sales of confectionery. Just like, that's, you know. So, so while they could talk the game and they were positive, they will not. They're behind the scenes with, and I've sat in meetings with ministers, they'll go, oh, you know, it's very difficult, very difficult, very difficult. You then have a body like, uh, the next kind of stage is the IGD, which is uh, an institute, weird, grocery. Grocery distribution. Distribution, but basically that is, we have a frame, we have a very strong uh, legal framework where supermarket bosses, food bosses can't talk to each other in case they collude, and if you talk, you get sent to prison. So the IGD, so the IGD is there as a forum for them talking, and actually, in that forum, because it's mostly like CEOs, you can actually get some quite constructive discussions. But then as you go through to the individual companies, they will often talk a good game publicly, but behind the scenes will say it's very difficult. Now, one thing I get a sense of at the moment, and it's on the health side, is that behind the scenes, there are some really senior CEOs who are prepared to go to whoever the next health secretary is, looking like it might be West Streeting, the Labour shadow secretary, and say, we need more regulation. And try, because they see now, they have seen, it, one of the former supermarket CEOs said to me three years ago, they don't realise this is their smoking. This yeah. Dark real health. We saw in the papers earlier this week that it's destroying the economy as well. The Treasury are worried about it. So I think that is likely to happen. But the question will be, when the, the regulation is actually drafted, whether they go, well, not that, <laughs> no, no, not that regulation. So it's very difficult because of the need to, as a government, you need to consult. You don't want to do stupid. There is a lot of stupid regulation. And you don't want to do stupid regulation that will have undesired effects. So it's very hard for government to consult, to try and make the regulation good regulation without then being told yeah. mischievous. You know, that, that there won't be any children's programming if you take food, bad food out of the way from children's things, that you're not going to crash the economy, that all the advertising firms aren't going to bust. So it's really tricky. And I think that probably most people in that system kind of are willfully blind yeah. think they're doing yes. the right thing. There's a massive amount of self As one might have in, in the smoking era, right? As yeah, well. Well, you, have, you know, if you think about it, if you are a big food, uh, you know, most of those CEOs will be 60, 70. So they got into the game you know, in the 80s, probably. It wasn't clear at that point that food was going to be you know, its biggest cause of biodiversity destruction, second biggest cause of climate change, biggest cause of affordable health. You just going to make a yes. finger of fudge to give the kids a treat, which we had when I was young. And now you're suddenly, you've grown up all your life in that business, and you're suddenly like, well, and your children are talking to you yes. about it. Yes. So, Dad, Mum, what are you going to do about this? And it's a really difficult place to be. You can't yes. just get up and become a bus driver. So it's a very, I think mm. it's a, a hard thing if, you, if you're stuck in that place. <laughs> and do Seth, do you see a way through? Oh. <laughs> Big question. You know, I think that we're, we're probably going to see something iterative and something radical. And I think that on the iterative stuff, 
we are seeing more and more of the companies that we work with, which tend to be a lot of like big consumer goods companies and, 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 and retailers and suppliers and ingredients producers, we're seeing more eco design at the product level. And so it's stuff like saying, look, I have like a, a six pack of a product and has a plastic film around it. Can I actually remove the plastic film? And maybe there's a down, small downside commercially because people buy five cans rather than six, mm -hmm. but the environmental impact is systematically better. I think there's more innovation in that sort of side happening right now. And we're, we're, we're facilitating a lot of that where our customers are able to like redesign the individual product at the level of a stock keeping unit and actually take it out apart. And they can do that for thousands of, of SKUs. That I think is still kind of incremental small stuff and that can drive a lot of change. You can get a one, two, three percent emissions reduction year on year from that sort of stuff and that can compound. Um, I think that what I don't think enough companies are recognizing and calling out is that the, the kind of change that we need to make to have, you know, let's talk about 1.5 degrees or, or something similar, right, on climate, is going to require large scale capital. We talk about the, the system change value, but actually it needs to come down to cash flow, and that's going to require large-scale capital. And I think that that will only come from three places. One is pass on cost to the consumer. The consumer pays more, maybe small fractions, maybe pennies on the pound. The second is margin contraction of some kind, where actually some player in the value chain, and I think retailers would rather it's brands and ingredient suppliers and and, and the ingredient suppliers are, would rather the brands shouldered some of it, but some form of margin contraction. Uh, and, and the third, I think, is um, efficiency. And actually, efficiency only gets you so far. Efficiency gets you that 1% or 2% per year. If you want something more radical, you need one of the other two. And I think the only way you get one of the other two, so price passed on to the consumer or margin contraction, is regulation or quasi-regulation. Yeah. I don't see any other way uh, because no one wants to increase costs uh, voluntarily. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that uh, we'll find out. In our <laughs> so, um, you know, in 40 years. Yeah, tune in, tune tune in, in, years. Tune in, in 20 years. <laughs> and we'll have an answer for you. Um, well, before the roaming megaphone comes back, I think we should wrap up. But Henry, thank you so much. Thank you. Seth, thank you as ever. Um, and thank you for listening. Tune in again and pop us any questions. We'd love to hear them. Thank you. Thanks.